You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. The Word of God says, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Verse 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do just come before you this morning. We worship you and praise you today because you are the reason for our faith. You're the reason for our joy this morning. You're the reason for our life. And Lord Jesus, we just want to remember that. We want to thank you. We want to praise you. Lord, be with um, the families that are not complete this morning. If their wives are, uh, men's wives are at the women's retreat today. Uh, Moms at the women's retreat today. Lord, all kinds of uh, uh, things happening. Lord, we just pray that you would just bless us now with your presence as we study your word. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Speak to us this morning as you speak to the ladies at the retreat and to the children in the children's ministry. And Lord, we just pray that today all things would glorify you because you deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. During worship, a number for the children popped up on the screen and I was frantic there for a minute thinking, what if it's one of mine? You know, <laughs> what, what am I going to do? So if number 910 pops up, would somebody just go get those kids and, or get whoever it is that's acting up for me? I'd appreciate it. Peter's post-it note, that's the title of the sermon today. And I, I chose that because he uses the word remember several times in these three verses. It's as if he's reaching out from time past, sticking a post-it note on our face or in our mirror... And, and just trying to get a hold of our attention this morning and, and, and say something that's important to us, reminding us, if you will, of the amazing life that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We'll be uh, being stirred up, hopefully, by the words of the Apostle Peter to remember the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of what Jesus Christ has done the new identity that we've been given in His name, and all of this through the Word of God, coming to us here in verses 12 through 15. Now, I want to talk a little bit this morning, uh, by way of introduction, about the perfect storm that seems to be eroding the values of Christianity. It's raging in full force, and it has been for some time. I don't want to talk about this in a really pessimistic way that gets everybody depressed, though. I just want you to be aware of it. I just want to get the information out in case you haven't noticed it. The storm has two basic fronts. The first is tolerance, which uh, we could probably also call relativism. Tolerance is probably the product of relativism. Uh, And and then the second uh, branch of that storm or front of that storm is the Internet, Now, the first front of this perfect storm that's raging against the values of Christianity is the teaching of tolerance. Actually, this storm has been raging for quite some time. Uh, Sometime in the late uh, 1990s or probably early 1990s, uh, we've entered into what is now known as the postmodern phase of 
uh, uh, philosophy. And really, uh, it, it's interesting because if you look at it, it's, it's only postmodernism as it's applied to religion and philosophy. Uh, we still believe in modernistic type values when it comes to science and, 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 and things, of, uh, things that you can research and things that you can see and observe and, and have scientific processes on. But tolerance used to mean that we tolerated each other out of mutual respect. Each person was allowed to hold their own convictions as long as they didn't force them on somebody else in a harmful way. But one's false beliefs didn't change the fact that they were still wrong. There was still absolute truth. And if you were on the wrong side of absolute truth, you were wrong. We would tolerate your belief in something false or your opinion about something that was false But we didn't necessarily have to accept it. But now, tolerance has changed the definition of it. It has come to mean that all is equal and should be equally accepted, especially in terms of religion. It's the idea that truth is relative to the experience of the individual. Therefore, everyone's version of the truth must be accepted, or else someone will be labeled as hateful and bigoted. If you don't believe that the definition for tolerance has changed, check this out. Listen to these two different definitions taken from two different years. The first comes from Webster's Dictionary, 1913. It says, tolerance, the power or capacity of enduring, the act of enduring, endurance. And the second part of that definition says that the endurance of the presence or actions of objectionable persons or of the expression of offensive opinions. So that's... Webster's Dictionary, 1913. Fast forward to 2015, and the Merriam-Webster's, now as it's known, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, the 11th edition, says this, has this definition for tolerance. Number one, willingness to accept feelings, habits, or beliefs that are different from your own. Two, the ability to accept, experience, or survive something harmful or unpleasant. Did you notice that the words accept and acceptance made their way into the definition of tolerance? So what once was enduring the expression of offensive opinions has now become the ability to accept something harmful or unpleasant. It sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? I mean, it literally sounds crazy. Mr. Noah Webster or, or, or let me back up a second. So as you can see, our culture has undergone this subtle shift in our understanding of what truth is and where does it come from. Uh, I read in a book that that's called epistemology, okay? <laughs> epistemology is the study of where truth is derived from. So that, that, that shift has happened in our culture. Where truth, or what truth is and where it comes from, we've undergone a shift. Mr. Noah Webster, the author of that first dictionary that I referenced, he believed that truth is absolute and it comes from God. But on the other hand, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, the 11th edition, reflects a different worldview. It reflects a worldview of secular humanism. Secular humanism has become the guiding force of our culture. And tolerance is the message That it preaches to us. Our younger generations are now growing up in a weird world. Where they're often taught contradictory things. They're often 
forced to accept things that contradict each other by their very nature. And they're told that that's what we're all supposed to do. They're also taught that truth comes from science. That if you can prove it with science, then it must be true. So they go to school and see people in lab coats with clipboards that are handing them what is true. And then they come to church and they hear about miraculous things that are hard to believe. And at school they're being told, yeah, you know, if that's true for you, that's okay. But we really can't prove any of that. So that's one of the reasons that truth has been eroding slowly as the generations go on. As you and I uh, are growing up in this postmodern philosophy, we see this happening all around us. So the concept of truth in the world of religion has now been relegated to the personal level. Like I said before, if it's true for you, then that's all that matters. If it works for you, then it must be true. This is why it's so important today that we reemphasize marriage and family values in the church. Because when our young people see marriages splitting up at the whim of the fleshly passions of a man or a woman, it shows them that marriage doesn't work. It shows them, why would we do that if it doesn't work? And so we need to reemphasize and show them, hey, marriage is much more than just a man and a woman in a union together, living in the same house together. It's elevated in the view of God to something that is holy. It is a covenant made with God. And only God can release us from that covenant. There are many things that, that, that this type of secular humanism has uh, now infiltrated the church in and is attacking us in. And so when the young generation see that the truth that we teach is not working in our lives, they throw it out. They write it off. Whereas in my generation, perhaps in your generation, we would say, well, if it's true, it has to work. I'm just not lining up with the truth. Now what we see happening is that the younger generation is saying, Well, it didn't work, so it must not be true. Because truth is based on experience, personal experience. The second front of the storm that is attacking Christianity today is technology, or we we should say the internet. The internet has really come in the form of a three-pronged attack. And that attack, first, is the intellectual attack. The internet has given the ability, like never before, to have information at our fingertips In fact, how many of you have ever Googled something I say in a sermon? Or a word, you know? You you hear a word or you hear a story and you're Googling it, right? I know. I do the same thing. We're the Google generation. In 20 seconds, we can have all the information we need at our fingertips. You need to learn how to do something? There's a YouTube video for it, right? You can look it up and, and watch how it happens. That's how I learned to clip my chicken's wings. Not everything on the internet is bad, is it? It's a great tool. It can be a great tool for getting the gospel out. And it can have very useful purposes, as I told you about, like clipping chicken wings, right? But this information overload has produced skepticism and has produced doubt of all that cannot be proven by the scientific community. It's leveled the playing field between experts and scholars and common people alike. 
It's given everybody an equal platform or an equal opportunity to learn and it's, or, or to get the information that they need. And it's given an equal platform to all the religions in the world. It used to be that some of these cult religions that were out there were, were hidden away and not a lot of people knew anything about them. But now, today, the Internet's given them this platform where they can get their information out to the whole world. And so they're growing in popularity and, and, and they're able to grow and recruit on a much easier way. That has fed into the pluralism <clears throat> that is all around us today. That, that, that is basically the belief that all religions are equally true and equally valid. That's what pluralism says. So the second prong of the, in, of the uh, internet attack is in the amoral area, the amoral realm. The attack against morals through the internet is multitude and it can organize or it can be organized loosely using the biblical term sensual it appeals to the flesh taking advantage of the lust of the flesh the internet has basically turned uh, into a devil's playground for those that are dominated by lust and according to statistics taken from an internet filter review site 90% of 8 to 16 year olds have viewed some sort of pornography according to this website, mostly while doing their homework. The largest consumer of internet pornography is the age group of 12 to 17-year-olds. And 90% of college-aged men viewed pornography weekly. 67% of men and 49% of women aged 18 to 26 stated that they think viewing pornography is acceptable. And 50 to 55% of evangelical pastors have viewed or are viewing pornography. It's a $9 billion industry, and it's growing. I've heard that you could take the income from the NFL, the NBA, and the, National, uh, and the uh, Major League Baseball and put it together, and it still doesn't total what the pornography industry is bringing in every year. So this attack alone, as you can imagine, it's destroying not only the moral authority of the church, but it's undergrading and devaluing and destroying families in the church as well. The basic societal foundation. The third prong of the attack from the internet comes in the form of relationships or the relational area. The area of relating one to another. You see, God has made us as human beings as meant to connect to each other. When we are in fellowship, when people know us and we know them and they have interaction with us in our lives, it brings us joy. We don't always like the interactions, but knowing that someone loves us and cares for us enough to interact with us and to pursue us and to have an, a relationship with us, it brings us joy. God built us that way. There's a satisfaction that takes place as we connect with other people. That's why life groups are so important. Yet there's evidence today that all the exposure that takes place digitally through the social media is actually creating a sense of aloneness and superficiality in the world. Those who rely on social media for their relationship fulfillment are becoming increasingly selfish and alienated from having real relationships with real people. What we have today is more people than ever who are connected through social media but they're not relating with each other. 
connected but not relating. It's scary. I've had several conversations with uh, what I would call the, the, the millennial generation. And it, it is amazing. It, it really is amazing how they, they view the internet and social media. And, and really, I, I just want to put a word of caution out there to the young people that are here today listening. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> you have no idea how much of your life is out there on those social media websites. And, and you, have to, you have to have safeguards. You have to be wise. Um, we need to be very, very careful because there's a lot of connecting going on, but there's not a lot of real-life relationships taking place. We can talk more about that at a different time. But getting back to the bigger picture, this is the storm. These, these two fronts of relativism and the Internet, they've combined into this perfect storm, and it's already wreaking havoc on the church in the United States of America. If you haven't noticed recently, black and white is becoming much more black and white. The gray area is disappearing, and we have to know where we stand. We have to know what we believe in. We need truth more than ever. We need men, and we need women who are willing and dedicated to take a stand on what they believe. And to know why you believe it, and be able to explain that to somebody when the questions come, because I guarantee you the questions will come. The millennials are looking for why. They want to know why. It's a simple question, but I didn't get that answer when I was a kid. The answer I usually got was, because that's what we do, or this is the way it is, or you just better listen to me, or you'll be in trouble, buddy. <laughs> so we need to answer the why question. We need to know why we believe what, what we believe, and we need men and women to take a stand for the truth. That's what Peter's doing this morning. Peter, in this epistle, He's giving us his witness. And his witness will remind us, that's the first point of our message this morning, is that Peter's witness is given to remind us of something. Look at verse 12 with me. Peter says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. So you might know the truth, you might be established in the truth, but that doesn't mean that you're off the hook. And that doesn't mean that I'm off the hook or the church is off the hook. We're to continually remind you, just like Peter, the apostle, is doing. Now, he says, I will not be negligent. What is the reason that Peter will not neglect to remind us of these things for? Well, he's just finished telling us about the importance of making our call and election sure. Remember last week, that was the, the examination that we were basically up against. Do we really know for sure if we're part of the elect? There's no way we can not know if we're part of the elect, but it, we, we can know if we are. And Peter says, hey, you better make that calling, you better make that election sure. You better search your heart and you better add to your faith these virtues that are found in Jesus Christ, he says. And so he's just emphasized all of the great things about a relationship with God. All the great things that God has done, the great and exceedingly, or the exceedingly great and precious promises that you have available to you in Jesus Christ. And now the importance of the gospel message is such that Peter will not neglect to remind us of it. 
No matter how much you might already know, we can always be reminded. We need to be reminded. I need to be reminded every day. I need to wake up in the morning and just remember who I am in Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you what, it is so easy to buy into the lies that the world is preaching to us today. It's in their songs, it's in the movies, it's in the TV shows, it's in the social media, it's in the advertising, it's everywhere. This message that they're trying to put into our hearts and formulate into our minds. And you know what? I need to be reminded every day of my identity in Jesus Christ. I need to come back to that. And that's what Peter's doing. He's reminding us of these things always. Now, as many of you know, I'm a fan of sports. I love all kinds of sports. If, if it's competitive, I like to do it. In fact, I remember my brother and I one time in our front yard, there was this tree that my dad had grown in our front yard, and we would just take this football and just throw it over the tree, and like if it fell on the ground on the other side, then I got a point. It's like the most simple game in the universe, but my brother and I would do it for hours. Why? Because we liked competition. We just liked to see who could, you know, Throw the ball over there and have it fall on the ground. We'd like try to deflect it off the branches and things like that. I I don't know why, but I just like competition. In my high school days, I participated in the sport of wrestling, which was pretty popular in Nevada. It's the state where I grew up. By the time I was a senior, I had learned pretty much everything that my high school coach could teach me about the sport of wrestling. But did that mean that I didn't have to go to practice anymore? No way. Every day I showed up at practice, and guess what? My coach had a full slate of things laid out for me to do. And you know what most of it was? Was repetition. It was repeating basic moves over and over and over again until I could do them in my sleep. So you learn by repetition. You learn and improve through repetition. We need the same thing when it comes to our spiritual lives. We need to be reminded of our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. My son Ezekiel is playing third grade football. I didn't even know they had that, you know, in the world. But here in Texas, they have third grade football. And my son, he wanted to do it. So we signed him up and he's doing it. And, you know, their team knows like three plays on offense. And I think they were putting in a fourth at the game yesterday, you know, like in the game, you know, like, hey, just throw the ball down there. He's wide open, you know. He still couldn't, they they couldn't do it. But it was hilarious to watch these kids. They know three plays. But you know what? They're still, they they, they run them. And and I mean, they're horrible if you compare them to college and, you know, NFL guys. Why? Because they just don't have the reps in, guys. They need to practice with repetition. They're not going to get those plays to run to perfection until they've repeated it over and over and over and over. Christian, it's the same concept here. It's the same idea. You need to be reminded daily of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just for unbelievers. It's for you too. It's for you too as a Christian, okay? You need to adopt, adopt this attitude of diligence in reminding our own selves and others of Jesus. Hey, let's remember Jesus. Let's worship Jesus. Second point this morning. The witness of Peter, his witness will stir us up. So it will cause us to remember, but his witness also stirs us up. Verse 13. Yes, he says, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. In verse 13, I want to look at the phrase, to stir you up. The word that's used here in the Greek 
was used for waking somebody up from sleep. In fact, the same word was used when the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was exhausted from that long day of ministry. And he lay down to take a nap. And the storm rose up. And the disciples were fearing for their lives. And they come over and they're shaking Jesus. And the same Greek word there is used to rouse him. To wake him up from his slumber. So here, forgetfulness then is being compared to sleepiness. Now, as humans, we're prone to forget the great things that God has done. We're prone to grow comfortable over time. We get into a routine. We like the way things are in our lives. And as things grow comfortable, it breeds forgetfulness. We begin to forget the things that we need to be doing. We begin to forget how good God is. We begin to forget all that we've been saved from. We forget these great and exceeding promises that have been given to us by Jesus Christ. And we fall into the trap of sin again, don't we? We forget so easily. It's part of human nature, I think. You ever read the book of Judges? Man, you get kind of annoyed at the cycle that the Israelites go through for those 450 years of the book of Judges. It's just, you know, the same thing that, you know, they... They grow comfortable, they get apathetic, they forget who they are, you know, they forget what they're supposed to be about, and they fall into sin, and then they get enslaved by that sin, and they're dominated by somebody, and God sends enemies, and then raises up a judge, and they deliver them, and they repent, turn back to the Lord, and then they repeat the whole cycle again, numerous times. It's a story of my life. <laughs> story of my life, right there in the book of Judges. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ can come in and break those chains, and I've seen him do that. And I, I know that he can do the same for you. That's the hope that we have, the living hope. You know, the other night, my son Ezekiel came downstairs. My wife and I were sitting in the living room. We were getting ready to go to bed. It was around 11 o'clock. And Ezekiel comes walking in. And, you know, we look up. And we're like, this is weird. He never gets up in the middle of the night. And we look over at him. And he just has this blank stare on his face. He's looking right at us, but then not really looking at us, you know. And he just walks over to the kitchen, opens up the drawer, and pulls out two cookbooks. <laughs> 11 o'clock at night, and he's pulling out two cookbooks, and we're looking at him like, what is this kid doing? He takes the cookbooks and goes upstairs, you know, and, and my wife and I are like, what is he doing? So we followed him up to his room to see what he's doing. He goes in the bathroom with the cookbooks and throws them on the floor, and then he just stares at them. For like five minutes, he's just staring at these cookbooks on the floor, and we're like, is he going to make something? You know, <laughs> what's he going to do right now? You know, it was, it was this weird moment, but he was totally sleepwalking. So we got him tucked back into bed, and the next morning I said, Ezekiel, do you know what you did last night? No, no clue. He had no clue what he had done. So like us. We do the same thing with life. We do the same thing with Jesus Christ and the gospel. We do the same thing with the amazing, amazing promises that we have been given. And we do the same thing with the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. We forget. We forget And Peter here wants to stir us up. He wants to rouse us from sleep. And he wants to get us thinking about and remembering the love of Jesus. Remembering that he went to the cross for you and for me. Remembering that the fact of our lives is that we need to be loving him. We need to be loving him. We need to have affection in our hearts for him. And this is what Peter is working towards here. Secondly, in verse 13, I want to point out to you that Peter sees his body as a temporal dwelling place, doesn't he? He says, tent. He says the word tent there. Yes, I think it is right. As long as I'm in this tent, 
So he's looking at his body as just a temporary dwelling place for his soul. A tent is not a permanent dwelling. Your body is not a permanent dwelling, okay? Now, what I'm going to say next may upset some of you, but that's okay. You need to hear it anyways. What is the ratio of your life that you're pouring into a temporary dwelling? And what is the ratio of your life that you're giving to God? You see, the, the children of Israel, they were a nomadic people for a long time in the, in, the, uh, in the Pentateuch. In the first five books of the Bible, you read about them. Man, they camped all over the place. They lived in tents. But you know what was in the middle of that camp? It was not a fitness center or a gym. It was a tabernacle where they met with God. And what was the significance of that was that God was the center of their lives. Now, I'm not knocking exercise and gyms and all of that. That's great. I, if, I wish I went to the gym more, you know. I, mean, I have problems with that. But we need to remember that this is temporary. And what Peter is telling us is, look, this tent is going to be put off. Tents are supposed to be temporary. They're not meant to last. Try, try you know, any camping tent. It'll last you a good 10 Ten years if you're lucky. Fifteen if it's an amazing tent. But tents are not meant to last forever, especially if you use them all the time. So, so know that. Peter is stirring us up. He's rousing us from sleepiness. And he's reminding us, look, this is a temporary dwelling. It gets old. It's corroding. It's deteriorating. One day you're going to lay it aside. So this is... So that, and, and that's the reason that Peter's wanting to stir us up to remember is that he's dying soon. Remember, this is his last letter. Peter knows he's going to die. That's the last point that we're going to look at this morning. The witness of Peter will stand forever. His witness was to remind us of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His witness is to stir us up, to wake us up from sleep, so that we stand on those precious promises. But thirdly, his witness will last forever. It will stand forever. Verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Diligence. Peter was diligent to leave us a reminder. So, after Peter had denied the Lord three times in his, uh, when, the Lord, when Jesus was on the earth, when he had denied him three times in that courtyard where Jesus was being interrogated, he was devastated. He came face to face with the reality of the weakness of his own flesh. Of the weakness and pride of wanting to depend upon himself. But the Lord Jesus didn't leave him there. Because as you remember, he sought him out after the resurrection. And he lovingly restored Peter and he charged him with being a shepherd to the church of Jesus Christ. But not only that, it was at that time, it was in that conversation where Jesus reveals to Peter a, converse, uh, a, a prophecy about how he was going to die. The kind of death by which he would glorify God and depart from this world. And he tells Peter, hey, when you get old... People are going to come and they're going to take you where you do not want to go. And they're going to stretch out your arms. And he was prophesying of the, of the way that Peter was going to die. We know from church history that Peter died sometime around A.D. 67 or 68. And he was probably put to death by the Emperor Nero. And church tradition tells us that he was crucified. His arms were stretched out. And he was crucified upside down. 
And so somehow the Lord has revealed to him as he's penning this letter, writing this letter to the church, that that time is coming soon. His time is almost up. He's an old man by this point. And as he's writing this, he may even have been, you know, already heard the footsteps at the door of the folks coming to take him away. We don't know. But even though he was killed, his soul is alive. That precious faith of the Apostle Peter was paid out. That eternal life was given to him. The moment that his earthly tent was laid aside, he stepped into glory. He stepped into the reality of all of our lives. And that is that we have been given eternal life through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So because Peter was diligent to testify, because he was diligent to be a witness of his story, what he had lived with the Son of God, his witness will stand forever. Did you know that Peter and the other apostles, they built the foundation of the church that you and I are attending today with their witness? In fact, one of the things that we do every Sunday here, we study the doctrine of the apostles. Why? Because they're the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. But the words and the works of the apostles, those are the foundation upon which the church was built. Jesus is the rock, but we're built upon these teachings, these doctrines. And so Peter's witness will stand the test of time, and he will witness to you and to me forever. That's his legacy. So as we wrap this up this morning, my question is for you who is here this morning, You've come out to the church and you've heard this message. You've been stirred up, hopefully, to remember the promises of Jesus Christ for you. And you've been stirred up to to be reminded of these great things. But what legacy are you now going to build with your life? What witness will you leave behind? Will you live your life in such a way as to be a witness of the truth? Or will your life be lived in the realm of forgetfulness and slumber? This, this, this place where we get comfortable and then the comfort just turns into apathy. And then that apathy turns into enslavement to sins that we know that we've been given victory over. You know, one of the greatest verses in the Bible for people who have fallen back into things, former things that that ensnared them before, and they're wondering, man, what's going on? What's wrong? How come I'm not experiencing life the way I used to? One of the greatest verses comes from Revelation 2, where where the, the, the Lord is speaking to His church, and He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and return. He tells the church to remember, to repent, and to return to those first works that they did when they were in love with Jesus Christ. You know what? Maybe there's some of you here this morning that you've gotten comfortable in your Christian life. You've gotten comfortable in your Christianity, and it's just kind of, you know, it's not the center of your camp anymore. It's just kind of out there on the fringes, or it's something that you do on Sundays. Hey, will you be challenged this morning? I pray that the Holy Spirit challenges you 
to rethink things, to reprioritize, that he would stir you up this morning by way of reminder of the great and awesome things that Jesus Christ did to purchase you as his own child. You don't belong to you anymore. (laughs) You don't belong to the world. You belong to God. He's redeemed you. He's bought you. He's purchased you with his precious blood. And so be reminded, be stirred up this morning that he's here and he's offering you true life. He offers you purpose. He offers you meaning. He offers you forgiveness of all your sin. He offers you a new identity as a child of God. Does it sound too good to be true? It's not. It's what the Word of God tells us. But you've got to appropriate that. You've got to make it your own. You've got to be one who says, you know what? I'm going to stand right now on the Word of God. The Apostle Peter, his inspired doctrine comes straight from God. I'm going to stand on it. And I'm going to make my stand here and I'm going to leave a legacy of a witness to what Jesus Christ can do and has done. What Jesus Christ has done. The alternative is to face God's wrath for your sin without an advocate. It's facing God's wrath without anyone who will mediate for you in the courtroom of the Almighty God. Now I'm fearful that that should happen to me. Because I know who I am. I know who I am. And if God were to take my many sins and to list them before me, and I was not to have an advocate, a lawyer who would stand between me and the judge of God's wrath, I know today, without a shadow of a doubt, I would be condemned. I would be sentenced to eternal punishment. But I thank God this morning for Jesus Christ. I thank God for the grace of God who has redeemed me. He's seen me and come and rescued me. And and this is today what the Lord is desiring to do in all of our lives. Have you believed in Him? Have you accepted Him as Lord? Have you offered your life on the altar of His love? Recognizing, hey, this tent's temporary. I'm not taking this with me. What is going to be the priority of my camp? Is it going to be the tabernacle, the meeting of God, where I meet with God? And I don't mean the building here. I mean your relationship with the Lord, your personal life. Or is it going to be other things that are just going to fade away? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. We're so thankful for your grace and mercy. We're thankful that you've reached out to us. That you stepped down out of glory to come and to rescue us. And Lord Jesus, that you've given us so many great and precious promises so that we can live our lives free from sin, so that we can live our lives free from the power and the penalty of it. God, you've given us true life. Help us to walk in it. Help us to experience it. Help us to know what abundant life really is. As we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, If you're here this morning and you know that you need Jesus, what we've been talking about today is speaking straight to your heart. The Holy Spirit is confirming it. You might feel a tug in your heart. You might feel that these words are for you. It's the Lord. It's the Lord God. He's knocking upon your heart. And I want to make an invitation to you today to receive Him. If you know that you need to get right with God and God has been speaking to you this morning, then this is the day that God has called you to salvation. I would like to ask that um, the prayer teams would come down to the front. I know we just, we have 
some guys, some uh, folks that are coming up this morning. I'd like you to come up now. And I'm going to ask those that feel that God is speaking to their hearts today. I'm going to ask you to stand up out of your seat and to come down as we worship the Lord this morning and to talk with one of these men or women that are up here in the front, the prayer team. They want to lead you in how to know Jesus Christ and how to make him your Lord and your Savior this morning. So let's all stand to our feet. And I'm going to finish that prayer that I started. Lord, we just pray that you would give faith or give feet to the faith of those that need to come to you today, that need to give their lives to you. We also pray that you would give encouragement and exhortation to those of us that need to repent and need to turn away from things that are choking out the spiritual life that you have given us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would stir us up through the words of the Apostle Peter to remember the great gospel of Jesus Christ and how great and awesome it is that we've been set free, that we no longer have to live our lives dominated by sin. So Lord Jesus, we give this time to you, we love you, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.